This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. What would you say are your talents? My talents? Podcasting. Mm-hmm. Handsome. That's, yep. I'm pretty good at old Nintendo games. You are pretty good at old Nintendo games. That's true. I've seen it in action. Those are my like top three talents. What are yours? N- liking baseball. Mm-hmm. Not like, you can't just say baseball. No, I'm glad I'm that you know at, you can't just say baseball. I am better than I would think at hitting, but the other parts I don't think I'm as good at. Yeah, because uh, you got to run after you hit. You got to run, yeah. Uh, listening, I like to listen uh, to anything. Uh, and messing up while cooking. That's my last one. That's a not. It sounds like the reverse of a talent. It's a curse. An anti-talent. An anti-talent. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. We're talking about talents this week because Andrew read The Talented Mr. Ripley by mm-hmm. who? By Patricia Highsmith. Put you on the spot. Uh, Andrew, did, did you ever enter a talent show as a kid? Uh, I was in a high school talent show. What did you do for your high school Wait, talent show? I was in show? a band. What did you in a perform? rock and roll band. Did you perform a Weezer song? Uh, yes. Which Weezer and song? It was the sweater one. And also yeah. um, Stacy's mom. Oh, good. And I think Brains do the Green Day song. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> We're pretty good. I never, perf- I never performed in a talent show. I once auditioned for a high school talent show by singing a cappella by myself a i think a perfect circle song that i don't yeah it was a weird time ninth grade was a a, weird that's a weird one to sing a cappella by yourself but then later that year our choir director sang in your eyes for the faculty talent show and i was glad that i did not there's a faculty talent show i guess that is a thing (laughs) but that it feels like a sitcom episode. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it is a sitcom episode construction. I think maybe just like in the super suppressed Midwest, people don't do that stuff. Yeah, it's no good. Like once you're an adult, you don't get to express yourself in public anymore because it's just untoward. Yeah, just what are you bringing your talents into this room for? Just pick up the thing and move it over there. Yeah. You adult. Like, let's talk about this book. Let's talk about I've this never book read and about the author of it. I have. Uh, if, okay, so if you don't know about the podcast, if you're new, checking us out, we talk about the book. Uh, one of us read it for the for this episode. That's well, Andrew. Every, every week, it's a different book. Oh, every yes, not. It's welcome to overdue. It's a talented Mr. Ripley podcast, um, and we're going to talk about the author in the book a little bit first. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to talk about what happens in this book so that you know what's in it. Mm-hmm. That's the way it works. Um, I've never read this book. I knew it was a movie. That's where my knowledge of it stopped and 
started. Yeah, there's the it's a bunch of Patricia Highsmith stuff has been adapted. I think that movie Carol is one of the more recent works well, of hers that's been adapted into something. Was oh. How did I make a bunch of notes about that book she wrote and not connect it to that movie? Okay. It was originally um, published under another... The book was published under another name, and it also used a pseudonym for her, Claire Morgan, I think, because yes. it was about lesbians. This but, is the um, book, The Price of Salt. We'll talk about that in a second. Yes, right. Yeah. But um, anyway, so yeah, um, her novel, Strangers on a Train, was adapted a bunch of Very times. Very famous most... Hitchcock film, yeah. Yes. Um, uh, this one was adapted a bunch of times. The one most people will probably know is the 1999 movie with uh, Matt Damon and Jude Law and Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah. And then there's a French-Italian version that was made in 1960. There was an Indian film uh, in 2012 called Non, which I think is based more on the mo- the 1999 movie than it is oh, interesting. the book itself. But it's you know it's the same thing. Okay. Um, and then there's a there was an episode of this show called Studio One, which was a CBS first a radio show and then a TV anthology series. So, like, basically think of it as 60-minute TV movies. Not quite Twilight Zone. I don't think it had sure. that much of a theme, but, like, that's the kind... It was, like, filmed theater, well, I guess, and, basically. And knowing nothing of... Not really knowing her career as an author, I was surprised to find, like, how quickly her books got turned into stuff. Yeah. Like, the turnaround on Strangers on a Train is, like, only a couple years, if that. Same thing with the f- with the... Uh, talented Mr. Ripley into that film Purple Noon, which is mm-hmm. the Italian film, right? Um, which she liked. She called it "quote very beautiful to the eye and interesting to the intellect." Uh, but that they sounds, changed. Her. It's like all the words there are very complimentary, <laughs> but it sounds like shade still. Well, she yeah, she didn't like. They changed the ending, and she thought it was an appeal to quote so called public morality. Oh sure, so. yeah, no, I I could see <laughs> knowing what I do about the way this book ends, I could see why she would be um, upset about it. So Miss Highsmith, she was born in Texas in 1921. She died in Switzerland in 1974. Four is that tr- is that right? Ninety five. No, Ninety five. Yeah. Wow. I don't know where I got seventy four from. Sorry. About uh, Nineteen seventy four was when the third book in hey. the five book Ripley series. Let's say that's definitely what I was thinking. Also called the Ripley Ad. Oh um, yeah, that's when that was published. There are five Ripley books. Um, the Ripley Ad. I, I don't really know funny. anything about how any of the other ones go down, except that. There's like a 15-year gap between the first one and the second one, and then the rest of them are spaced out, not like quite evenly, but like 70, 74, 80, and 91 are the mm. years those all came out. So took a break, and then for most of the rest of her career, she was publishing Ripley, Ripley books. books periodically. Which were very popular. She, I think there's one where like a novelist has Ripley doing stuff on their behalf, which some have like i know there's some like art collector like art heist stuff going on too like uh, it's a whole thing (laughs) but uh she as i said she grew up in texas she moved to new york city when her parents split up moved with her mother and stepfather i mentioned this mostly because she had a long like a lifelong love-hate relationship with her mom like she moved there went to new york city she got sent back to texas and then moved back there later uh, her mom at one point told her that she had attempted to abort her, and like, Thanks, but that, mom. Who know? Like, who knows if that's true? Like, it's like a whole thing. 
Um, she also had Spanish flu when she was a little kid and like spent most of her life struggling with a variety of physical and mental illnesses in a which couple one different is, ways. Which one is Spanish flu? Do you know off the top of your head? That's the like 19, 1920s one that like killed like mil- millions of people worldwide. I don't know what it does to you specifically other than it got around the world during World War One, and then like went on from there. I don't really know. Okay. Yeah. Um, she, uh, I have some stuff here on her, as you mentioned earlier, the lesbian novel that she wrote, The Price of Salt, um, came out of her own experiences dating women. Um, she purportedly said that she preferred women sexually, um, but like preferred the company of men socially, which she bemoaned a bunch, apparently, because it was difficult for her. Um, but this book, The Price of Salt, in, that she wrote under the name Claire Morgan, was written in 51 and published in 52. And it's a lesbian romance that's based on her experiences, as I said, such as relationships with uh, Catherine Cohen and Virginia Catherwood. And she, it's notable not only just for it being a work in her canon, but uh, apparently it's one of the few books that she wrote that had a happy ending. It's also one of the few books that portrayed a lesbian relationship in that era that had a happy ending. Um, I don't necessarily know that it's the only, but that's why that's any, any reading I did about the book said that to be true. Sure. Um, And it also, I think at least a couple of the characters broke away from the stereotypical, like butch femme paradigm, which at the time was also revolutionary to read about. Um, I mean, like, don't you don't even have to say at the time. Still, I don't. Sure. I don't think. Oh, that's like, fair. I think that's, that's still fair. pretty prevalent in popular culture. Yeah, I think a character in the book is like confused that her relationship does not conform to that. Um, as a writer, she started writing some comic books in the '40s. Her first novel, as we said, was "Strangers on a Train," which was 1950. Uh, and then this book, Ripley, was 55, Correct. nominated for the Edgar Allan Poe Award, won the Grand Prix de Literature Policière Award from France, which is an international... Thanks, France. It's, it's a crime novel award. And Thanks every for trying, year, France. <laughs> here's what I like about this award, Andrew. Every year they give one to a French book and one to a book from somewhere else. <laughs> That's Which I, typical. Yeah, I mean, I guess with the Academy Awards, it's like, here are all the best American movies, and here's a category for all the, everyone else's movies. Yeah, here's one for, like, best international short film. <laughs> yeah. And we hope you can even enter the country now. Mm. Good luck. Oh, that was such a bummer last year when those, so, when those man, documentary makers couldn't to be more specific their... about what was the, a bummer last year. I, it was no, I know doc- what you're talking yeah, about. I'm okay. just making a joke how everything's bad. Uh, <laughs> Uh, this book I read, there's a great article on, I think it's on Mental Floss, uh, which is a cool website that has a little bit about the background of this book and its overlap with Highsmith's life, and that she was traveling in Europe in 52, um, obviously doing well off her first book, and she was like in a hotel, having trouble with her current girlfriend at the time, and she like walks out and just sees a solitary young man in shorts and sandals with a towel flung over his shoulder, making his way along the beach. There was an air of pensiveness about him, maybe unease. And she wondered, had he quarreled with someone, what was on his mind? And that is apparently where Mr. Ripley himself came from. 
That okay. is the story that she has said, and I guess we'll stick to it. I'm curious, like, probably he just, what, like, had a resting face that made him look kind of <laughs> sullen. I don't know. It's very possible. How many stories on this planet have started by, like, an author looking at just, like, a tired person and assuming the worst? <laughs> Yeah, I guess that is like a creative writing exercise, maybe, right? It's I've, just to like people yeah. watch and, and make up stories for everyone. I've used it I've used it a lot in classes. I've there's a great series of photographs from a oh, is it is it uh Vivian Meyer is a Chicago photographer from mid twentieth century. Just these awesome portraits that she took on the street. I use them as writing exercises all the time because it's like, why is there this like man riding a horse down the sidewalk? Let's write about him. This uh, like little kids wearing Mickey Mouse ears, like sitting on the curb. Like, let's talk about it. it's. It's pretty good character work. You should administer this writing exercise to me at some point. Ooh. I'm just saying. Okay, that sounds good. Uh, is there anything else about the origin of this book you want to talk about or about Highsmith before we get going? No, um, she's a pretty cool lady. Um, did a, did a ton of work. Is really well regarded. Yeah, like we said, lots of adaptations and. Yeah, like I don't have anything specific, but like you should you should go find more about her if you are so inclined. Like she did it, she did a lot of stuff. There's a lot to lot to read about. Yeah. There's some there's some writing of hers from the eighties when she was living in Switzerland and she was uh very critical of Israel and Oh yeah, sometimes this, she's a little racist. Yeah, she does like Yeah. She's that she's problematic in in some some she just she she said that Koreans eat dogs and so that's why she doesn't like them and also that black people are responsible for the welfare crisis in America so yeah 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 and she was very Patricia and, Highsmith milkshake duck oh isn't it great that everyone is terrible? It just, no, le- it I just, just levels the playing field. They were actually, um, there's a medical history podcast called Sawbones that, that Craig and I both yeah. listen to that we like. They were talking about, like, if you go back a certain, like, pretty much any amount of time, you get to, you get to talk about people who, like, did a lot of really neat work and, like, advanced advanced all kinds of causes in their lifetimes and then but they had views that like maybe were were acceptable or accepted in the in the day and and rub us the wrong way now like it's it's, it inevitably happens i don't know like how much to weight it when we talk about yeah authors from different time periods like certainly I, i would not I don't know if you're going to read about Highsmith. That's that doesn't seem to be like her defining characteristic or whatever. But well, and I I don't know if it factors into this book at all. But just certainly, certainly no. Like I mean, yeah, it's yeah. it's a book written in 1955, so everybody's white people. Like it's not. I don't know. It's just the in, white by default because it doesn't think about anything else, which is worth saying. And then we can we can judge it from from what it is after that I yeah yeah like I, I don't want to make like a huge deal about it or anything but yeah if you're going to talk about a person i guess you talk about the totality of the person if you can help it <laughs> yeah if you can um, you don't have to though but yeah. we can mm-hmm. i do have a note here that this is just a little fun little fact from the uh 1999 adaptation andrew i've just thought i just found this phrasing interesting we like to enjoy fun wikipedia phrases from time to time to prepare for the role of ripley damon 
lost 30 pounds and learned to play the piano. Jude Law gained weight and learned to play the saxophone for his character. <laughs> I just am confused by like why those two things are set with each other and so perfectly paralleled. It just it sounds like Mad Libs. It, do- <laughs> this it doesn't sound like a thing that... Did this to his body and learned this musical instrument. Well, also, I haven't seen the movie. Like, maybe... Sure. Like, like, nobody plays the saxophone in this book, but maybe you look at somebody <laughs> and you're like, you know, that guy looks like he knows how to play the saxophone. <laughs> and then you cast him and find out that he can't. Well, yeah. time to learn. Time mm-hmm. to learn, Jude. Uh, Andrew, let's take Law. a quick break so that I can learn the saxophone, and then we'll come back and talk about the book. All right. Andrew, I'm hungry. Oh, no. Fix it. Fix my <laughs> hunger. <laughs> well, if you're hungry, you know what's good for that is food. And you know who's good at food is our pals of Blue Apron. Oh, our pals of Blue Apron. Uh, Why, what do they know about food? They're, well, they're the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. Uh, their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. Uh, they establish partnerships with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the United States. And what they do with all that food that they get from all those farms, fisheries, and ranchers is they put it in a box with <laughs> recipe cards. They give you exactly much as much food as you need to make the recipes, and then you make it, and then and you're, and you eat it, and it's good. And it's not like super expensive because all the food that I feed myself with is like too expensive for me. Yes, it's it's under ten dollars per person per meal. Their their standard plan um, is three meals a week that serve two people each. That's and not bad. Um, if you yeah if you know if you know you're going to be out of town one week you can like go on their website and skip deliveries really easily um you can specify like oh I don't eat meat or oh I don't eat red meat and um tell them some stuff about your dietary preferences and and they can work around many of those I don't think all of them but many of them um Craig what do you know about the kinds of meals people can get if they subscribe to Blue Apron like I, in the immediate future I know something cuz I've been playing the dummy this this ad spot but I do have the same copy that you have so I can tell you that I am salivating for some basil pesto chicken with summer vegetable panzanella some sauteed <laughs> shrimp and green beans with globe tomatoes spinach and orzo I didn't know that Those globe are tomatoes, tomatoes that look like globes right <laughs> huge tomatoes uh, you can get whole grain pasta summer vegetables with heirloom tomato Caprese salad. You can get miso butter salmon, lo mein noodles with cucumber and charm tomatoes. Those are very charming tomatoes. Or meatball pizza with fresh mozzarella cheese and more charm tomatoes. These mm. all. I just tomatoes so are on a charm <laughs> offensive. They're on a tomato kick. I love it. Mm. Um, it's affordable. As Andrew said, there's a lot of variety and, and they're very flexible. Um, and you use it. We we've used it for a little bit. Use it more often than we do. Um, yeah, we get, we've got it like easy, every right? almost every week for. We took a break around when we moved, but for like a couple of years now, and I don't think we've ever like repeated the same recipe. Like it, it making the recipes like they give you really good step by step directions with pictures. The pictures are vital if you've never done any of this <laughs> stuff before. But you're gonna learn more about how to cook. Like I am way more confident about just like throwing stuff in a pan now. Yeah. Like if I just need to scrounge around because I know more about like the fundamentals of how to mix food together and make it taste good. That's because good. I've made a lot of Blue Apron recipes. So that's good. 
Uh, so yeah, if this sounds interesting to you, you can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash overdue. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. Stop it. Stop waiting. That's blueapron.com slash overdue. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Andrew, who is Mr. Ripley Wait, and what on. are... Well, oh. I wanted to tell you about one of my other talents. Do you want to oh. know about it? Yeah, please tell me about your talent. Cracking cold ones. Uh, <laughs> but who is Mr. Ripley and what are his talents? Mr. Ripley is a... I think you would call him a bad person. <laughs> Now, I would call him, or do you mean like you and the globe, like we I, as a society would call him a bad person? Generally speaking, and listen, I can't speak for all of society. Like that, we are, th- this globe has a lot of different viewpoints on it, and I don't yep. agree with all of them. But I think, generally speaking, he would be considered a bad person. Okay. Like, what? where does he come from? Why is he bad? Um. So let's back up a little bit. Let's back up to the beginning of the book, which I find is often a good place to start when discussing a book. Yeah. Um, so Tom Ripley is a guy in New York. He's a little down on his luck. Um, and he is in a bar kind of contemplating his, his next move when um, a father of like a, an acquaintance recognizes him and like pulls up a stool and like wants to talk to him about his son. Dickie Greenleaf. Okay. My son, Dickie Greenleaf. My son, Dickie Greenleaf. Uh, as Mr. Greenleaf tells Tom, Dickie has gone to Italy and he's like pursuing painting instead of the family business. And Mr. Greenleaf just wants Dickie to come back. And he is willing to pay Tom's way to go to Italy and stay for a few weeks and like talk Dickie into coming home. And Tom like misrepresents his relationship with Dickie a little bit. Like he okay. knew him kind of like okay. well enough to have met his dad like a time. Hmm. But like they weren't me, super close friends or anything like that. Can you tell me when you think this is taking place and how old is Tom? I mean, the book was written in fifty five, and, and this, there's no. This, it's like it's post war. It yeah, is no, it, it's it's. Yes, it is happening roughly contemporaneously with like its publication date. And how old is Tom? And Tom's like twenty five ish. Okay, so he's a he's a younger lad. Well, in in he's that in that teen, day, he would he's probably have been like a firm, firmly an adult. Firmly, you say? Yeah, like okay. none of this emerging adulthood millennial Shh. stuff. Well, but there is a dad wandering into a bar asking a 25-year-old to go to Italy to save his son from painting. So I'm just like, you know. He is a young man. Okay, sure. And Dickie is roughly the same age. That's uh, so, yeah, and, and we learn that our first sign that Tom Ripley is perhaps a less than scrupulous individual. <laughs> okay. Is that he, like, he used to work, I think, for the IRS, and he's been like fake collecting tax checks from people under an assumed name. And he hasn't like cashed any of the checks. But one one thing that Tom does sometimes is he sort of puts one over on people just to see if he can. And usually he can. 
Okay, like what kind of things is he putting over on people? Well, like collecting fake in, in, like income tax checks from people. <laughs> okay. Um, and just like generally lying about his identity and like coming up with these richly complicated stories about the identities that he's assuming and like the things that he's doing. Okay. Um, so, but, but yeah, he's, he's living like he, we learn that his, his family situation is not great. Like he doesn't, I don't remember if his mom and or dad are dead or just not in the picture or what, but he was raised primarily by an aunt who he does not have a great relationship with. We don't really meet her except to hear about her a couple of times. Um, and he's living in this house in New York with a few other people and he's just, you know, he's, he sees the appeal in going to Europe and kind of starting fresh and, and using this like assignment as a springboard to doing that. It it basically sounds like a grifter has been approached with a really good grifting opportunity. Yes, this is an excellent he probably can't turn down. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so he goes he goes to Italy and he goes to find Dickie. And it's worth pointing out at this early stage that he has no intention of not at least trying to do what he was oh, sent okay. to do. Now, how do you know this? Are you in his head you're in his like a head third person all the time you're in his head all the time first person it's not first person it's super close third person okay, you okay. See, you're always really interested in like what person the thing is taking place yeah. in. it's just like it's you know everything that goes through his head but it's not like oh i am thinking this i am thinking that that's that's fine but i i am always interested in like where the camera is you know what i mean like i want to know like super mario 64 yeah, like where is Lucky to? Is he like flying around, or have you zoomed in and like you're looking around with the stick, even though now you can't move because mm-hmm. it's an N64. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. I just want to know what the style of prose is because I didn't read the book. That's no, that's yeah, that's what that's what it is. You're you're getting everything through filtered through him in a way like. And you never get the sense that he's a wholly unreliable narrator. Like you That's do, another thing I want to know. You sure. do yeah. get everything as it happens, but you also get like Tom Ripley flavor all over everything. <laughs> like it's Ew. you have to be aware of like how this information is being processed, I guess. Sure. I, it's also helpful to me to know that we don't get anyone else's perspective. No. Does that make else. sense? Yeah. Okay. Right. Cool. So he goes to Italy. He goes to Italy. He's hanging out with Dicky and Dicky's like girlfriend-ish Marge, who is another uh, like American expat person. Uh, okay, cool. Um, and he he initially like does not hit it off with either of them, but eventually like he and Dicky start getting along pretty well, and they start hanging out like all the time. And no wait, but he knew Dicky before. Like, but like... It, Dicky does not really remember Tom. Except oh, in that okay. in that way where you pretend to remember somebody for the sake of politeness. Huh. I see. Okay. Okay. Um and they like they do know enough of the same like places and people, whatever. Like the, the connection is pretty tenuous, but then they start hanging out more and then there's, you know, there's just that connection. An actual now. connection. Okay. That's right. Um and Marge doesn't like it. And <laughs> she started like, and she gets kind of jealous that of of them hanging out a lot. And she starts like intimating that 
Ripley is is gay and that's why he wants to hang out with Dickie all the time. Huh. And all pretty much all the characters in the book have like it, his his sexuality is not specifically addressed. Yeah. But I, all the characters in, in the book act pretty much like you would expect people in 1955 to act about homosexuality. Yeah, and it I was reading a little bit that like that's on the table in these books but is left a little like loose yeah so right. yeah okay um okay. i i feel like at least in this book ripley is that is at like a bare minimum is bisexual and just like there, there's a spectrum of of addressing LGBT stuff in this book and it's like either you are vaguely repulsed by it or you just try not to think about it or talk about it very much. It's a very okay. 1950s attitude. Very 1950s. Um, sure. At least from the perspective of the of the characters. Obviously we know that Highsmith's experience was was a bit different. But, yeah, um, sure. And, and there's this incident where Tom is up in Dickie's room and they're about like the same height. Um, Tom is maybe a little slimmer in build than Dickie is, but they don't look totally dissimilar. And as you know, as we talked about one of one of Tom's things is he likes to pretend to be other people sometimes. And so he's up in Dickie's room, like trying on one of Dickie's suits and like putting on some of Dickie's mannerisms just because he's becoming like a little obsessed with like okay. pulling Dickie away from Marge and just like hanging out with Dickie all the time. So at this point, the I gotta get you back to your dad scheme is like perhaps he, yeah, not. He tried a couple times, but Dickie's pretty much not having it. Like Andrew, there's what I think I have worn a shirt of yours once. Yeah, and not because like I really wanted to. No, it's because you it forgot. An I undershirt needed, and you needed yes, one. Yes. I desperately needed an undershirt. And then I gave it back to you several weeks later because I did. packed it into my things. Yep. Mm-hmm. But I have never, in the years that we were roommates, in all of the years that we've been best good friends, I have never thought, what if I put on an Andrew shirt? What would that be like? I mean, nowadays I wear that medium tall stuff. And yeah, you the do. difference between my 6'4 and you're like 6'1. Uh, six. Very generous of you. I appreciate it. All right. <laughs> it's probably enough that you would look like you were wearing your dad's clothes a little bit. Uh, or like yeah. it was the 90s. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I would I would look like I was Ross from Friends. He's always wearing those big shirts. Oh, those big shirts. Those big shirts. Those big 90s shirts. You know, forget about it. It's fine. Is that your Ross impression? No, that's Joey. He also wore them. He Did he say forget about it? He said, how you doing? He's Italian. <sighs> That's all I know. Um, see, We're yeah, Dicky walks in on this happening. Oh, and oh, his... I thought Dicky was in the room. Oh no, no. okay. No. Uh, Dicky walks in on this happening, and his predict his, his reaction is predictably <laughs> is predictably not thrilled. Great. Yeah, he's a little okay. weirded. He has the weirds a little bit. Their relationship sort of starts to deteriorate a little bit, and Dicky's trying to. Try and give him the the that easy letdown, you know, the easy protracted. I don't want to hang out with you anymore, but I'm not just going to kick you straight out because you're like living in my house, and that would be mean. But yeah, he's giving him that slow fade. Yeah, the you, me, and Dupree, like you need to get out of here. 
Owen Wilson, I hate you. I'm not familiar with that reference. That's fine. Get out of Italy is what he said. Is that like Harry? You mean like Harry and the Hendersons? <laughs> that, that is the other movie I think about when I just picture Owen Wilson, just because I think he looks like him. But sure. <laughs> um, And yeah, Tom is... Not taken to it, I don't yeah, think. Yeah, like he's he's getting all like paranoid and and resentful and and nasty and he really resents that Dickie's being cold to him and so they go out on this outing it's like the last big outing that the two of them are going to go on together before they sort of start to 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 go their separate ways and pretty much out of nowhere Tom is like what if I killed him Oh, like he's just thinking about it. He just comes to the realization. And he's had like a couple, apparently, you know, he thinks as as he's mauling this over that he's had this impulse a couple times, but it's been like a fleeting thing. And now he's sitting on a train with Dickie and they've had kind of a bad day. And he's just like thinking, what if I killed him? What if I killed him and maybe I look enough like him that I could steal his identity and continue living this relatively comfortable European lifestyle to which I have become accustomed. Oh no. At least he's not planning to go back and be like, dad, I'm home. <laughs> no, he's not going to do that. They don't, he doesn't look enough like Dickie for that. It's just enough that if he like lightened his hair and like gained a little bit of weight, maybe he could use Dickie's passport and pass as Dickie to strangers. Oh no. So he's like, Hey Dickie, uh, why don't you want to go out on like a boat? You want to like rent a speedboat and like go and hang, just like hang on a boat and then like swim because you love swimming so much. And whenever you swim, you take off your rings that I could steal and <laughs> use to steal your identity. That's insidious. Okay, sure. And why Dickie's don't... and Dickie's like, yeah, sure. Let's go swimming. That sounds fun. And so they rent a boat and they go out in the water. And Tom's like, hey, time to swim. Let's take our clothes off and jump in the water. And Dickie's like, okay, here I go. And he takes most of his clothes off. And then Tom is like, hey. And hits him with an oar and kills him. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, no. And then ties him to like a hunk of concrete and like sinks him in the in the water. Oh, no, Dickie. I hardly knew ye. And, the, and then he takes the bloodstained boat. And rides it up to an abandoned beach and scuttles it. Man, that's resourceful for a dude who did not plan this. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, he doesn't always, like, plan far in advance his moves, but he always seems... He's really good at plate spinning. Well, like, yeah, like, once he's once he's done a thing, he's like, okay, here's how I spin this thing and make it seem like I was not involved or that I was justified or like just here's how I'm going to make it work from here. Is there any remorse? Is there any like, yeah, I, I guess I just got to try and be as good a person as Dickie was <laughs> like, no, there's not like he has a couple moments of man. I didn't, I don't want to be a murderer. Like, but I want to be this guy. Yeah. Okay. There's a but there's not line. really there's it's there's some sociopathic tendencies going on here, I think. But like how was he do about Marge? So at this point he starts to talk to everybody who knows Dickie and like 
and other people in the little village they've been in and starts telling them, oh, yeah, Dickie said he's going to move up to Rome and he wants to, like, start selling all of his stuff. And and he says, you know, Marge, he did like, don't go up to see him, whatever, because he picks up, I think, correctly that Marge is more into Dickie than Dickie is into Marge. Okay. And so he's kind of. So his story trying is just to that- trying to let her down gently and say and saying that like Dickie is doing that slow fade thing to you, so like okay. don't try to go up there and like see him or anything. Oh, I was mistakenly under the impression that Marge like lived with Dickie, but if that's not the case, they spend a lot be, of time together. But um, no, they have separate easier. residences. Yeah. All right, way easier to ghost him in that way, I suppose. Okay. Yeah, so so Tom kind of starts getting Dickie's affairs in order and then like takes a bunch of Dickie stuff and moves up to Rome and successfully passes as Dickie for like a couple of months. To whom? Like who cares about him in just Rome? Just a bunch of strangers. Like it's just he is he Tom Ripley the poor, like downtrodden person from Boston or New York or wherever he's originally from. I think he says Boston, even though he's living in New York when the book started. Sure. Um, he has now assumed the identity of this carefree, rich guy living off of a trust fund. Okay. Okay. And so he can, he can just have like a looser, more fun existence, I guess. More like well to do and, and, Sure. Just like doing whatever he wants to do. Is and he... also like there's that rush of like, you know, I killed somebody. I'm getting away with it. <laughs> that comes up a couple yeah. of times. Okay. Is there a sense that he is he like addicted to shape shifting or is he now like is he satisfied as being Dicky? He just wants t- to be Dicky. Okay. So he is sat- he is like for at least for the time being like he's cool with that. Yeah. It, it enables him. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then, so here's where I guess I can talk a little bit about the kind of stuff that Highsmith does to like build and sustain tension. So at this point, like he gets, it looks like he's gotten away with like the immediate aftermath of straight up murdering somebody. Yeah, sure. And like you, you and I, the readers know from like watching a bunch of crime shows that the you know that that first like 48 hours or whatever it is is the most important after like a yes. crime is committed because after that the trail starts to go cold because at yes because at this point the the easier thing it would be a like you would be able to catch him for is just pretending to be somebody else not proving that he murdered anyone well i mean obviously if somebody is missing and he is pretending to be them that's pretty incriminating but like it, he's yeah Sure. Like but- his his line right now is that Tom has left and he Dickie is now just Dickie hanging out in Rome and being Dickie. And this is in the fifties and there's no Facebook, so like Tom's Instagram wouldn't be like dead. Right. Like there would be like he wouldn't go back to New York and start like tweeting pictures of hot dogs or whatever again. Yeah, like I, I don't know doing. what the Townsend Mr. Ripley looks like in the age of social media, but Okay. Yeah, it's probably a lot of like really sophisticated Instagram scamming. <laughs> I feel like we've seen some Lifetime movies that involve social media Mr. Ripleying, but I don't I imagine they're less successful yeah, than right. than this than this boy um, Tom here. So, yeah, you get 
like so so the first big point of because it looks like for a while he's going to get away with it but you're also like halfway through this book and you the reader assume okay like he can't if he does get away with it and i and i'm not and i don't think he will but if he does get away with it it's not going to happen this easily like not with this sure. much of the yeah. book left sure and so there's a mutual friend who knows both Tom and Dickie who shows up in Rome and like looks Dickie up Uh-oh. and like comes a Colin and knows that Tom isn't Dickie, but the person at the desk says, Oh, Dickie's the only one up there and he hasn't left and he's, you know, he's, he's living alone and whatever. And so the guy comes up and is like, Hey, listen, could you tell me like what's going on? And <laughs> <laughs> the answer to that question is a glass ashtray in the face. Whoa! Um, man, and so th- and Tom that... is really good at like close quarters combat. Apparently, yeah. I mean, I guess when somebody's not expecting to be murdered, and you are the one with the blunt instrument and the element of surprise, it's not that hard to kill somebody. That's a dark thought for our comedy book podcast. Yeah, I'm well, and so, and so he's like he now that he's now that he's done it, he's thinking, okay, like what's the timeline? When did this person come here? When when did they go? What does Dickie know? What am I actually going to do with the physical evidence? Oh, I'm going to go out to the Apian Way. I'm going to drop him in the dark, and I'm, I'm going to park his car at a bar or whatever. And yeah. And if the police come and question me, like, that's what happened. And the police do come and question him, and he's he's answering their question. But then also Marge shows up, and the noose kind of starts, like, tightening a little bit. Okay. And is this, um, like, how – because we're confined to his point of view, there is not a, like – so, like, the other story I'm thinking of, I'm thinking a little bit of Catch Me If You Can, because that's another, like – recent con not recent but that's another like popular con man story a popular um, matt damon based no that's leo I, dicaprio oh, is it, oh yeah it is yeah so it's, it's our old boy leo um and man, why also, am i thinking this matt damon i guess it's just like a baby face yeah and it does Identity have Tom Hanks boy. In it. yeah and i while you were talking earlier i was thinking if i were going to murder someone and take their life it would be tom hanks probably <laughs> well everyone would know if you if you did it to tom hanks but everybody I, everybody knows what tom hanks looks like but if i did it long enough ago and i was insured to still be tom hanks uh, as we know him now i'm just trying to think of you in castaway and it's just <laughs> i don't think it would work okay well said but so there there is not a like we don't have a point of view of a cop trying to track this guy down. It's no, really no, all no. like he is realizing that the noose is tightening. Yes, and you and you do get a couple of moments of like cornered panic from Tom. Okay. But by and large, he's just acting very methodically and just hoping that everything comes out on the other side, okay? Sure. For him. Um Do those moments elicit any sympathy from you are they meant to that's one of the things about tom is he doesn't learn and he's not a sympathetic character (laughs) okay and why do we like him i didn't say that you liked him you just okay why is he popular though because he's a i don't know he murders people and he gets away (laughs) with it like (laughs) there's just there's a i don't know like popular like liking like i don't know that that's the right language to be using i think he is 
a fascinating character because of the way his brain works. Okay, that's and that's, all right. you, the reader, become really invested just in finding out whether he gets away with it in the end or not. Sure, that okay. Um, that answers my that answers that question for me. Yeah, so like but. that that's why you root for him. I guess to the extent that you do is you just get like buried way deep in all of his layers of excuses and in thinking. And, and and he thinks this as well if at a few different points like surely the jig is up like surely someone is going to put this together oh sh- that's a cool okay that's a cool element of suspense of like oh my god the the odds are so stacked against this guy i know he deserves to get caught but like what could possibly happen to get him out of it yeah like, right kind of thing? like okay. now nah, this sticky jam um graham green said of patricia highsmith that she is the poet of apprehension rather than fear Mm-hmm. which I think is which I read that and that's that that's really appropriate to this is like you're not he's not living life like terrified of being caught but when he does have these close shaves it just like starts to the anxiety like builds up and builds up and and that combines with his like ability to tell himself stories about how events went and like to make himself play these characters and like live these stories and it's just I can see why Hitchcock has been attracted to her work. Like, I'm thinking of there's another Hitchcock movie, Rope. Have you ever seen that movie, Andrew? I haven't seen a lot of Hitchcock. I've seen Psycho. Okay. And um, have you seen Vertigo? Because that's really good. No, I haven't seen Vertigo. Um, keep, Psycho keep Hitchcock. Talking, though. Um, yeah, uh, that Rope is about Leopold and Loeb. It's a Jimmy Stewart film, and there's just this amazing level of tension from i've seen rear window that's the other one. Oh, sure the other um, one there is a body hidden in an apartment and like part of the glee of the of the murderers is like whether or not the people who are over will discover it and obviously like it's up for them if they do <laughs> right but so like the tension is not about like oh my god what could possibly what scary thing could happen next or or what what ways could people threaten people it's literally just this like ever ratcheting up apprehension that's a good word for it graham green good work like apprehension of like oh my god when will the other shoe drop yeah right and then and well now that he's killed twice you you're you're always wondering okay when is it when is he going to get cornered enough and feel like he could get away with it easily enough that he's going to do it again like there's a moment so after this this second murder goes down, life as Dickie, like it's just it's the heat is on. Like he can't comfortably be Dickie anymore. So he has to make Dickie like him, him as Dickie disappear. Oh no. And then he, so he has, has to, to kill himself. Not even kill himself. He just has to disappear himself. Okay. Okay. And pick up his old identity as Tom who has been like conveniently staying at such cheap hotels that he doesn't have to register and just like (laughs) making his way around Northern Italy in a beat up old car for two months or however long. Of course he has. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, and he like, so the heat is on for Dickie. Dickie is suspected of having killed this one person and then they find the boat. Uh Oh, and so Dickie had been out with Tom and so Tom is now suspected as missing. 
Oh no! And so Tom and Tom waits, and he's like, "Okay, here, how how am I going to play Wait, this?" Wait, all right, Tom waits. Don't just stop it for a second. <laughs> Could you just like not Please. do this for like a second? Um, I'm not. I'm not trying to be p- petty. What are the other Toms? Oh no! <laughs> I'm not trying to be petty, but I don't cotton to this Tom foolery. <laughs> Are you broke? Oh, <laughs> stupid. <laughs> um, okay, so he, so, so, okay. So he's playing the scenario in his mind and he's like, all right, I'm, I'm Tom Ripley again. Sure. If I'm Tom Ripley and I read in the newspaper that I am missing. If I don't want to arouse suspicion, I have to come forward and be like, Hey, I'm not missing. I've just been like keeping it, keeping a low profile. I've just been trying to be incognito up here in Italy. And he's like, well, okay. So I like this one paragraph, like buried in this one newspaper can't be enough. I have to wait to see it a couple times or to see it like featured more prominently in a bigger newspaper to like raise the probability that I would have just seen it by chance. And not okay. that I'm like scanning the newspapers every single day to see if I got off with my cool crimes. <laughs> Yo, that's pretty. That's pretty smart. That's that's a talented Mr. Ripley. Yeah, I would and say. that's that's his talent is just like doing that stuff. Interesting. And so you the okay. you the reader just get like fascinated and like following his his machinations. And so from there, like the police start to question him about when Dickie was last seen, and he's basically trying to build a fiction. Where Dickie has disappeared, probably committed suicide. After maybe committing a murder or something. After maybe committing like a couple murders. Or just not just the one murder because Tom's still alive. (laughs) Okay. Um, And like having a a strong enough fiction for why he left hanging out with Dickie and like where he's been. Yeah, exactly. And so he like methodically builds out this timeline and talks to Marge. And like, of course, he doesn't admit anything to Marge, but like he uses her as a patsy a bit to like to set up like where he was and where Dickie was because because he as Dickie has been sending her letters and like talked to her on the phone once or twice and so she thinks that Dickie was alive like weeks and weeks past when he actually was and so it's just like he's building this house of cards and as a reader you expect any web of lies to eventually collapse under the weight of its own lies (laughs) I built this spidery house of playing cards. I built this spider come, web and it has tumbling down playing cards and lies all in it. And yeah, it's, uh-huh. I, I'm going to get stuck in my own web. Yes. Oh, the tangled webs we weave when first we practice to deceive. But it turns out that Tom Ripley's just real good at webs. He's a regular spider. Spider-Man over here because he gets away with it. Whoa. He just, just like sails off in the sunset. Not like, only gotcha does suckers. he get away with it, but then he has this letter that he wrote on on um, Dickie's typewriter and then signed as Dickie that says, oh, if anything happens to me, Tom gets all my stuff. What? <laughs> and he, whoa, like, he, and he just somehow gets away with it. Like he. By a combination of setting up this paper trail and also like socially engineering Dickie's dad who comes over with like an American private investigator to like try and figure out his own stuff because he thinks the Italian police are worthless. Oh, God. Um, 
man, yeah. like I and I don't. And then so when when you talked earlier about um, Highsmith not liking that first adaptation, I am sure they changed it to have him get Tom caught. get caught yeah. at the end. Yeah, I think so. And I think part of what makes this book fascinating is, yeah, he has a couple close shaves, but then ultimately he just gets away with it. Does it feel uh, surprising when he gets away with it? Like, is it like, oh, man, I really thought. Oh, yeah, a little bit. Like, I, I, I even though I read on Kindle books and so I know like roughly what percentage of the way through a book I am at any given moment, I was a little surprised when the book ended because it's just like, oh. Oh, he gets away with it. Yeah, yeah. And huh. so then, so that's if you're, and we have the spoiler warning uh, up sure. front. And if you're reading the book, like, yeah, like I guess I like my appreciation of it and my appreciation of like the apprehension building and stuff, like knowing that he doesn't get caught. Ahead of time, I guess it doesn't ruin it, but it, it takes something away from it. But I guess for a book published in 1955, where you know there were four more sequels yeah, published after true. that, like only to have, I guess, the like thing, only only to be as dumb about books as you and I are. Sure, would yeah, we true. like not already know that? I think I would also be amazed. And this was something. So this came up as I was kind of reading about this book, like uh, your your Walter White's of the of the media landscape are are an interesting analog as like someone who keeps a bunch of plates spin, plates spinning and you're like when will this come crashing down well, that's and that's how this kind of story typically ends is the yeah. news titans and titans and yeah probably to just give your story a shape to give it ups and downs you do have sometimes where the heat is off or where it looks like they're going to get away with it but then oh that one last loose thread they leave hanging like in uh tom's case he has sent a bunch of dickies stuff um to american express like the american express happens a lot in this book <laughs> like i guess it's just a place where you can wire money and keep your stuff and it's sure i don't know like i don't think that's what it is anymore right now it's that credit card that sometimes people don't that take sometimes people don't take they take it more than discover <laughs> but not as much as visa or mastercard yes uh-huh. um so yeah, he sent a couple of trunks full of Dickie's stuff to an American Express in Venice where he's living, like in the hopes that maybe the heat will come off Dickie enough that he can be Dickie again. Like he is oh, pretty interesting. not happy about having to be Tom just because the character of Tom is less fun to be than Dickie oh, is. Okay, sure. Um, but yeah, then like these suitcases open and this this case has been in the Italian papers for like months and people realize like that it's Dickie, it's Dickie Greenleaf stuff Ooh. and it, it makes it look like, yeah, you know, like his fingerprints are all over it and it seems like, Hey, the noose might tighten, but Oh, he gets away with that too, because the fingerprints of Tom as Dickie and the fingerprints that Tom as Dickie left in his like Rome apartment, they match. And so nobody asks, well, who do these fingerprints belong to? They just say, oh, the fingerprints oh belong to the same person. And we don't have them on file. So like, I guess it's fine. Nuts. Um, so it sounds like the if you're listening to this podcast now and you haven't read this book, I imagine the joy you would derive from going and reading it now is like an appreciation for 
how tight Highsmith can make the situation. Well, yeah, and I'm just still I'm just given, justify him getting out of it. Yeah, I'm just giving broad strokes. Like if you go yeah, back and sure. read this, you're still gonna get a lot of a lot of stuff, and you're really gonna appreciate how it's structured and how it makes like uh, so like halfway through this book, Craig and I talked yesterday about it, and um, I told you that it felt like up until that point it felt like a just like a competently executed version of uh and they shall know our velocity that dave eggers book i <laughs> yeah, read forever like, ago and didn't like. just that it was it was also a book where two unexceptional mm. young dudes like went on an international adventure and were supposed to care about it because of because of eventful okay. happenings or whatever sure and this this book like even before it's murder time like it makes <laughs> like okay. mundane like unexceptional young men hanging out like entertaining to read about okay like his perspective is is entertaining enough the things they do are cool yeah like there was a there's a stage production of it that was put on in 2010 and i read a review of it and it was just like not a lot happens. And like to the extent that the production is successful, it's because like the actors are making it interesting to watch people yeah. do nothing or just people have an internal monologue. Well, and I, and like, I, I don't think that is quite as true of the book as it may have been of that stage production, but it's still like, it's not untrue. Like it's, it's not what you're seeing a lot of the time is just somebody living. And then well, sometimes see, they're worried about like, like then they're just worried about their past actions catching up with them. And that's why I'm I'm thinking about like, that's what it is to tell a cool con man story. Because if you're a successful con man, like you are not drawing a lot of attention to yourself. Yeah. Right. Like you are effectively passing as a normal human being. (laughs) So like to tell one of those stories, there has to be bits where you're doing normal people stuff. Like you can't just be grifting 24 seven or else like the odds go up that you get caught. Yeah. People are going to catch your grift. Yeah. Andrew, can I share a quick anecdote about comment with you as we close the show? You can because I am done otherwise. Okay. Great. I'm out you- of all the podcasts is, has left my body. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, uh, the, this is the popular, origin story for the term confidence man when do you where do you think it came from when do you think it came from when i mean it sounds like a depression era thing it just sounds like the kind of thing that fast talking gangsters would say to each other 1849 my man in the new york herald there was a police column about a man named samuel thompson and they referred to him as a confidence man um here was his trick (laughs) he would walk up to people and like pretend to be someone that they knew sort of and say have you confidence in me to trust me with your watch until tomorrow and that's then that's a pretty bad grift but and then he would just leave so like he would spend a few minutes being like oh like like that scene from Groundhog's Day like oh Ned Ryerson it's me Ned hey. the head yeah yeah hey will you trust me with your watch like oh you don't believe me like give me your watch and I'll give it back to you tomorrow and then like nope you just leave and that's the I mean, New maybe York people Herald. were just not as on to grifts like they were I, they weren't possible. as aware of the dangers sure. of grifting I before do... the federal government had 
McGrifts, the grift dog, to <laughs> teach everyone to be aware of grifts. Uh, Herman Melville wrote a book called The Confidence Man, I think, that was inspired by this guy. And also, I appreciate this, Andrew. Times have not changed at all. The New York Herald, which wrote this story, also wrote an editorial comparing Samuel Thompson to the real confidence men who are Wall Street financiers. Wah. Am I right? Yeah. Wah. Occupy them. They're the confidence men. But I just think that's neat. I didn't know that that had like a real... The grift was like, do you... You actually would get... You would dare someone to disbelieve you, which is a pretty yeah, cool right. grift. I want to be clear that our like tones of voices and our, our bleh, like our whole thing that we just did <laughs> was more about how obvious that point is and yes. less about like disagreeing with it. Yeah, no, it's it's just kind of sad and obvious that it's like 150 years old. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but you know who's like the, re- the real con men? Politicians. What's the opposite of progress? Congress, am I right? <laughs> God. I'm glad right, you Jay Leno, book, why don't you take us home? <laughs> uh, if you, the person at home, the listener at home, have a fun grift that you want to share with us, you can reach out Ooh, to us on social. If you did a grift, Ooh. I want to know all about it as long as the statute of limitations is up. <laughs> If you do not incriminate yourself by sharing it with us, please send your grifts to uh, overduepod at gmail.com or uh, using the social media feeds of overduepod at, that's at, wait, facebook.com slash overduepod or twitter.com <laughs> slash overduepod. Uh, we got a bunch of folks reaching out after last week's NIM episode. Uh, so thanks to Eric, Fox, Rachel, Katie, Emily, Grace, Megan, Jean, Inga, Charlotte, Aaron, Wendy, Carol, Tessa, Megan, Leanne, Glenn, Taylor, Sean, Jess, Sarah, Adam, Melissa, Trisha, Caitlin, Joyce, Robin, Kimberly, Shannon, Ellen, Michael, Albee, Ray, Anna, Natalia, and probably a couple others that I forgot. Thanks, y'all. And, just, uh, and thanks again to the Unfriendly Black Hotties for opening for us oh, in yeah. that show and all the people at the PRX Podcast Garage who helped make that show such so much fun to do and, and like so enjoyable for you guys to listen to. That's not always been the case with live shows that we've done. So, yeah, we're just we're happy for people with good mics. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, what else, Andrew? Well, speaking of grifts, the thing I want to talk about this week is our Patreon page at patreon.com slash overdue pod. It's a way you can support our show financially. And um, we use that money to put on live shows. We use it to buy equipment. We use it to buy the books that we read. Um, And then you guys can use it to suggest books to us and uh, get some other perks in in the process. So, yeah, patreon.com slash overdue pod. We um, just recorded a bonus episode uh, that'll go up for patrons this, like in the next day or two, and then everyone else will get it in like a few days to a week after that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to be part of those recordings, you can find out more at the Patreon project, or you can also just get them early by being a Patreon supporter. Yep. And then uh, last last item of show business is uh, in October. Craig, do you have this date pulled up, like the date and the details and stuff? October 14th at the Fall for the Book Festival uh, in 
associated with George Mason University in Virginia. Yeah, so uh, D.C. area folks, Baltimore folks, uh, some of you have asked about live shows and we've said, hey, we got some news that we can share with you in a bit. This is the news. Um, We're going to be doing a show there. I'm going to be reading Beauty and the Beast, which I think is going to be a fun time. Yeah. Um, And yeah, we'll have more details about how to attend uh, up on our Facebook page and the website as as events progress. But yeah, mark your calendars. What is it, October 14th, you said? Yes, October 14th, Saturday afternoon is the plan. So we'll have more details. Uh, follow our feeds for that information. All right, guys. Uh, what book, Craig, are you reading next week? I believe, according to the website, OverduePodcast.com, that I am reading Bridge to Terabithia next. Boy, I that's am... going to be a laugh a minute, that one. Yeah, I'm going to buy a bunch of tissues. I hear it's a sad one, so buckle up, everyone. Yeah, it's a tearjerker. It's a real tearjerker. Okay, everybody, uh, thank you so much for listening and for supporting the show in all the ways that you all do it every single week. You make the show worth it, and that's why we do it. Uh, we will be back. We do it because it's worth it, because of you. We'll be back next Monday. Until then, all y'all try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.